Hey, Ryan. Hey, Levi. What do you call a short psychic who escaped prison? <laughs> what? A small medium at large. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to Lucidity, I'm Ryan Muskin. I'm Levi. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hear it for your Cleveland from Cleveland. St. Vincent St. Mary High School. <laughs> Lucidity. Go ahead. Lucidity James. Hi, guys. Welcome to Lucidity. Uh, I'm Ryan. That's Levi, uh, as you heard. Yeah. And today we're talking about the death penalty. Uh, <laughs> okay. I didn't that mean to. Are we using that? Are we using that intro? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, wow. today we're talking not really the death penalty. We're talking more about um, just convictions in general, wrongful convictions, mass incarceration. And I have a big passion for the thing, this thing called the Innocence Project, where they work with people who have been wrongfully convicted. And I have a huge distaste for the death penalty. And I just made this episode real personal. So if you guys don't agree with me, you can either leave or you can listen and try to hear my side of the argument. Uh, I, I, uh, I want to start this off with some little statistics here, just to kind of make my point right off the bat. Since DNA testing started in 1989, 337 people have been exonerated through DNA. 20 of those people were on death row. So that just makes me think right off the bat that if we've already found 20 people that were going to be killed and thank God that we had the technology to prove their innocence weren't killed, think about how many people like throughout history we have killed that were innocent. There had to be so many, and we, and their names will never be cleared. We'll never truly know. So the question it comes down to is, is ending the life of a guilty man worth the risk of taking the life of an innocent man? Uh, it is in Texas. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> hey, Levi, you know what time it is? Game time. I don't know. What, t- what time is it? Ta- 10.02 p.m. No, I'm just kidding. It's time for <laughs> the num, 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 numbers. This is the numbers. That was the coolest noise I've ever heard. That's pretty cool, right? Which one? Yeah, just go I, on. Yeah, the whole thing. Well, the ironic thing about the numbers is that um, not all of these things are about numbers, but whatever. Let's read it like newscasters. <clears throat> uh, okay, you start, because I don't know what that sounds like. Welcome back to Lucidity News. Tonight, the United States makes up about 4% of the world's population, yet 25% of the incarcerated population. It is the highest incarceration rate in the world. <clears throat> More at 11 on that. The incarceration rate has increased by 400% in the past 30 years. Recent studies say children as young as 13 have been sentenced to death. <clears throat> I don't know. You clear your throat after everyone. <laughs> yes. Uh, ooh, ha, ha. We use solitary confinement, which by international law is considered torture. Over to you, Levi. Right you are, Jim, and convicts have a nearly impossible time getting a job after being released, and are not eligible for welfare, student loans, or food stamps. And since raising minimum sentences and arresting more people, 
The annual cost for U.S. prisons is $75 billion, and crime rates have dropped by less than 10%. It isn't working. Yeah, those are the numbers for you. really shows how kind of corrupted our mass incarceration issue is in America. But now I want to talk about more of the focus on this episode is wrongful convictions. Uh, you have told me before that you are that is your biggest fear is being wrongfully convicted. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why is that? It's, scary? it's number one. Yeah. Why? Because just knowing like at any time the police could just bust in my door and be like, some guy said you did something, prove you didn't. And I'd be like, uh, well, what's, what's your, like, what were you doing this day? Well, I was uh, in my dorm by myself. <laughs> Great alibi. You're going to fry. Like, what? That's right. terrifying. Yeah. Like the it's... case with, with Joe, like there was no evidence at all. And he was sentenced to life in two days. Right. Like, <laughs> what, what is that? And we're going to talk about that now a little bit before we get to the interview. And Joe makes a point. Uh, you guys are going to hear in a minute here an interview I did with Joe, but uh, I'll explain that in a second. <laughs> he makes a point in the interview saying that it can happen to anybody, which makes me really think like, yeah, he was such just an average it's guy. legitimately terrifying. Kept himself, women, men, uh, young, old, anybody can be wrongfully convicted. And it's the system is so stacked against the defendant it's like it really is even so with horrible. no evidence like how do you convict a life sentence mm-hmm. with no evidence at all well that's it's that's wrong. what we're going to talk it's about here so so, so joe so today's uh, guest is a man named joe d'ambrosio i believe i'm saying that as best as i d'ambrosio uh he's a i've known him for a while he's from my um, home parish st clarence in ohio um he works there now but before he started working there he was on death row for all of 22 years. And it's a really interesting story. Uh, he was convicted of murder along with burglary and kidnapping and back in 1989. And he was finally exonerated in 2012. Uh, he was sentenced to death. So like, can you imagine? It, he has the right. Well, what, how did how do they explain? It? He had the fastest uh, death penalty, like trial. the fastest death row child ever. Right. It was literally over the course of two days. He went on trial, like, and then he was sentenced to death. You could be arrested and, t- today, and you'd be in jail uh, waiting to be killed by the state uh, by Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you'd be there for more than your entire existence so far. And that and was that's, that's yeah. really scary to me. Right. Well, and that's the, that was the thing. Joe had – he was so young at the time when it had happened – I mean, he, he'll he talk about the two. He just kind of got out of high school, went to the military for a little bit. Then he was working odd jobs, and he got a job cutting grass, doing some landscaping. And then after a month of working with these guys, one day police show up at his door and are arresting him for murder. And then he's sentenced to death two days later. <laughs> and <sighs> it's terrifying. And, now, and then he spent 22 years in prison, over 22 years. How can it not be your biggest fear? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's horrifying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what would be worse than that. Just sitting, just rotting in jail. And you're like, I know I didn't do it. And no one believes me. That's great. Well, and the thing is, they, they didn't even have to use DNA evidence to prove his innocence in the end. It was just uh, false, misleading forensic evidence. There's some perjury and false accusations and misconduct involved that led to his, that led to the results of his trial. 
Uh, and, and he'll talk about the two in the interview of how like easily he was proven innocent, but that nobody was doing it for him. Nobody was listening they to him. They didn't give him a chance to say he was. Yeah, the system is built to just say, oh, everybody says you're innocent, and they don't give you that opportunity. So you can find Joe's story. It's actually on Netflix, or I'm sure you can find it somewhere else on the internet. Uh, he's on a, he, There's like a short documentary. It's about 45 minutes, uh, CNN documentary called Death Row Stories. They do a bunch of different stories of people on Death Row. But Joe's is on there. I think it's the third episode, Joe D'Ambrosio. Yeah, season one, episode three. Yeah, I highly recommend watching it. it was, it's super interesting. Um, but I'm about to play an interview I had with him about this whole thing. And Joe's one of the nicest guys I've ever met for, you know, having such an unfortunate life so far. Um, you know, he was very unlucky. He, you know, spent all that time in prison for something he didn't do. And now the state, the state isn't even compensating him for it. And, uh, it it really, I mean, it ruins so much of his life and yet he's still such a nice and, and compassionate guy to talk to. And you'll hear that in the interview. So, uh, sit back and relax. All right, I'm sitting here with Mr. Joe D'Ambrosio. Joe, how are you doing? Good, and yourself? Pretty good. Thank you for uh, doing this for me. I really appreciate it. Um, no problem. Can you quickly for the kids in school? <laughs> can you quickly uh, explain kind of who you are, what you do, and um, a brief brief summary of your story? Um, my name is Joe D'Ambrosio. I'm a 52 year old white male. I've never been in trouble before with the law. I'm an honorably <laughs> discharged sergeant out of the military. And back in 1988, I worked for a landscaping company for less than a month. Didn't know anybody. Didn't know the area. Didn't know anything. 26 days after starting to work for this man, I was arrested and accused of killing this young man by slicing his throat and stabbing him three times in the chest. I had not a clue what they were talking about, and since I was never in trouble before with the law, I figured the system will work, and they'll just see that they have the wrong person and let me go. Well, I have the shortest death penalty trial in the state of Ohio history, two and three-quarter days from let's start to you die. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting on death row, wow. and no one listens to a man that's convicted. And I wrote everybody, every innocent project, every journalism school, every law school, um, ABC, NBC, all the networks, everybody. Nobody would listen to me. And, and go ahead. Uh, and after almost 10 years on the row, by God's providence, he sent me an angel by the name of Neil Kakuti, who is a priest an attorney, and a registered nurse. And he had to be all three things to do what he did for me because he's the one that found the evidence that exonerated me. And the sad thing is 80% of the evidence that freed me was in three places, the prosecutor's file, the police file, and the coroner's file, and it was there all along. They had it back in 1988, and they hid it from me. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a federal judge, when we put it in front of the federal judge, Reversed my conviction, sent me back for a retrial, and I, that happened in 2008. And what year did you? What year did you finally get out? 
Uh, well, I got out on bond in 2009 because the judge just saw how bad. Usually when you've got a death penalty case, they don't give you bond or they give you such a ridiculous bond, you can't make it, right. you know, like $5 million or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And the judge just saw that the prosecutor was still playing games and hiding and cheating and lying. They even tried to have the judge thrown off by fabricating a document saying that she worked, she was an attorney for my co-defendants. That's how bad. And when they did that, we asked for bond, and she let me out on bond in 2009. I was out on bond for exactly one year. Then we found out that they were they discovered even more evidence that they hid. And we went back to the federal judge and had the federal ju- asking the federal judge to wipe out my conviction and don't let them retry me. The judge said no to that and allowed them to retry me anyhow. But what the judge didn't know and nobody else knew is the only evidence against me is one person. It's my co-defendant. And it's the only evidence against me. Mm-hmm. Well, he died. Right. And they didn't tell anybody for six months that he died. And when the federal judge found this out, she said that I could not get a constitutional trial because I could not confront my accuser and because of the ongoing prosecutorial misconduct. Oh, gosh. Wow. And in 2012, the United States Supreme Court refused to hear cert and by doing so exonerated me. And so you spent a total of, is that 23 years? years on death row. I was 26 when I went in. Just got out of the military. I went straight into the military, straight out of high school. Wow. So you graduated high school, entered the military, worked a little, worked not even six months. Did my four years, right, did my four years, got out. Yeah. uh, After high school, I took the summer off, kind of, sort of. I was doing odd jobs and stuff just to get money. But, yeah, I didn't go in until September of 1981, and then I got out in September of 1985. And then you started working for this landscaping company. And... Well, I was doing little jobs because I thought – they told me I was certified as a mechanic. Come to find out that I thought the Army certified me as a mechanic. Okay. Come to find out I wasn't certified. So, actually, I was in the process of going back in when this case happened. Okay. I was through. I was just doing the landscaping job just to get the money to survive off of until I could go back and then I was going to make a career out of it. So you didn't even really know these guys that well. Um, who you no, were involved? I, I knew them for less than a month. Wow. I was sitting in a bar throwing darts, and some guy walked in and said, "Who wants to Who wants to cut grass?" Well, right. I grew up on a farm, so cutting grass is like second nature to me. Sure. Wow. You know, so I figured, okay, I can do that until my paperwork's all done and I go back into the military. Right. Worst mistake of my life. And you had the, you said the fastest trial uh, in for, the state of Ohio history. Yeah. Wow. And for less than three days. How, how, how did you feel on your first day when you were in, when you went to prison? And it, I mean, it just happened so quickly. Um, what was that like? It was surreal. It, it, it was like an endless nightmare. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I just kept telling myself, this can't be true. This can't be real. This, 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 this just can't happen. Right. You know, because like I said, I, I didn't, 
I never was in trouble before. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know any judges. I didn't know any police. I knew any, nobody in the justice system. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a farm boy. Right. Really. So right. I had not a clue of the system. So I, they give me my court appointed attorney because, of course, I'm broke. Right. And I thought I had Perry Mason come to find out I had Barney Pfeiffer, an attorney. <clears throat> and so you so you kind of went into this thing not really sure what was you didn't think that, you know, an innocent person was going to be accused of something like you knew you you didn't do anything. So how could you possibly end up in this position? And it almost jumps exactly. from one extreme to another. Right. Well, they actually they kept coming to me for, with deals back in 1988. Okay. They, they were all the way down to 10 to 25 years. And with my and they said with my record, I probably do seven years and get out. All I had to do is take the stand and point at my other co-defendant. And I'm like, okay, so you want me to take the stand, swear to God to tell the truth, and lie <laughs> and point at this other guy. They're like, no, 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 we don't want you to lie. We want you to just say this story. I said, but the story's a lie. No, 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 no. Just, just say the story. You can do seven years and you can go home. And I'm like, my immortal soul's worth more to me Right. Then, you know, and I'm like, well, do your best. And they're like, well, we're going to sit you in lecture and watch your eyes bug out. And I'm like, well, go for it. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, you know? they're offering, they're saying, oh, yeah, well, I mean, you can spend seven years for a crime that you didn't even commit or were involved in, you know. And that, right. Exactly. Yeah. And and they want me to take the stand, swear to God to tell the truth, and then bold-faced lie and yeah. point at somebody and put them on death row. Exactly. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what was the most frustrating part of that whole experience? Um, Nobody will listen to you. Mm-hmm. You're a convicted murderer. All they all say they didn't do it. Right. And and your and word. Means like it. I said, it wasn't until Father Neil came. And then he, you know, I talked, I talked him into taking my transcripts home the first night I talked, the first time I talked to him because when I told him how short my trial was, he couldn't believe that. The attorney kicked in, and he's like, they can't convict somebody of capital murder in less than three days. There's just no way. So he took the trial home. He read it that night, and as he was reading it, he came across the coroner's testimony. And in the coroner's testimony, it said that the coroner said that it was possible that this boy had his throat cut and was stabbed and was running down the creek screaming for his life. Mm-hmm. And he knew because he did 15 years critical care nurse with trachea patients. Sure. He so knew right once up you alley. compromise your airway, you can't speak. So now he has the shortest death penalty trial, and he has something that he knows for absolutely for a fact cannot happen. And he's like, well, wait a minute. If these things are wrong, what else? Yeah, exactly. And then he started digging. And with very little digging, he found this evidence that they were hiding. And so was this – what exactly was the type of evidence that got you out? Was there DNA evidence involved or – No, that's the problem with me trying to get compensation is there is no DNA. All there is is one man, actually the foreman of the landscaping company – Mm-hmm. The actual murder, one of the two actual murderers pointed his finger at me and said, I did it. Uh, right. Now, so he's a welfare cheat. 
He's a dishonorably discharged man out of the out of the army, uh, a drug addict, an, an admitted drug addict, and alcoholic, right, and violent. And they believed him over me. Right, and you had a completely clean record, and yeah, young guy. Wow. So, what do you? What was your routine like in um, in prison over that twenty? <laughs> I mean, I know it has to be pretty mundane and repetitive, but I, I know I remember talking to you in the past. You said you spent a lot of time just reading and studying the I law. Did my law. I did. I learned the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm like a D student in school, and I'm a little dyslexic, so reading isn't my forte. Mm-hmm. And so I figured since nobody was going to help me, I'm, I have to help myself. And the only way to help yourself is to use the law. So I had to learn the law. So I read and read and read and worked on my case. Cause I, I knew my case. I knew everything that they were saying was a lie. I had to prove it. Mm-hmm. And I had to prove it in a way that the courts would listen. And so I had to learn the law. So that's all I did. From the time I got up to the time I went to sleep, well, I had a little bit of wreck time. So I, when I did wreck, I would go out. I, I, I used to go, I'd work out. I'd take my shower. I'd make my phone calls. And then I'd go and I'd lock back up and go back to working on my case. Wow. And it eventually, clearly, it helped pay off. So you used that uh kind of help you write your case and um, explain it and get it over to people like Father Neil and uh, right. and such. And and how did you eventually come in contact with him? Actually, Father Neil read something in a religious magazine, a Carmelite brother out of Texas put into a magazine asking for priests to write death row inmates. Mm-hmm. Father Neil started writing this guy that was in the cell next to me named Keith Hennis. And Keith Hennis was sitting there telling him, you know, his case is messed up and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but if you think my case is messed up, you should talk to the guy in the cell next to me. And that was me. Right. Right around the time that he said that, my mother died. Well, death row inmates don't go to funerals. And right. Father Neil knew that my mother knew of me and knew my mother died and she was from the Cleveland area since he was here in the Cleveland area he went and commemorated her funeral so the next time he came to visit Keith he asked that he cut his visit short with Keith and asked the guards if he could visit with me and tell me about my mom's funeral now they didn't have to do that because he wasn't on my visiting list right but the guards kind of liked me because I stayed out of trouble and all I did was legal work Mm-hmm. So they allowed him to do that. So he's sitting there trying to tell me about my mom's funeral, and I'm thanking him and everything else. And I'm just like, but you need to help me. Right. And he's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't. So he goes he goes back to telling me about my mom's funeral. I'm like, well and good, and thank you very much, but they're trying to put me where she's at. Mm-hmm. Help me. And we went back and forth, back and forth. He kept trying to talk about my mom's funeral, and I kept telling him, asking him for help. And finally, he, I talked him into taking my transcript home, wow. and that started it. And that's that's it's a great thing that that happened. That's like that's a real blessing. Um, so it's God's providence, definitely, because there is no other priest in the world that has all three credentials. Right. <laughs> and he had to have all three to do what he did for me. If he only had two of the three. He couldn't have done what he did for me. Right. It's, he had to be all three. 
Now, how is that not God's providence? I'm on death row for something I didn't do. So there is no such thing as luck for me. Right. I right. have no luck, unless for bad luck. <laughs> so you got it's definitely God's providence. Well, what got you through your 22 years on death? I mean, that's had to be such a – so much has changed in the outside world, and you're sitting in the cell for something that you didn't do. How did you get through that? My faith – and knowing of my, and knowing my innocence and having and working to prove it, right. Those two things were the main things that got me through it. Right. You didn't want to give up on that because you knew you were innocent. No. Right. And it's like they're going to murder me for something I didn't do. I can't. No, I can't stand. I can't. No, I can't stand that. I can't let that stand. Mm-hmm. And so, what was what would you have done over that? period of 20 i mean if you if you could have been out during that time what kind of things do you think you would have done with your life um that you weren't well, afforded? I, I was going to go back into the military and i all i would have had to do is 16 more years and i could have retired with a full pension wow then i figured i could just do little things you know little odd jobs and stuff like that but and still get my full pension from the military mm-hmm because I love the military. It was a blast. Like I said, if they wouldn't have told me I was I wasn't I was certified I wasn't certified. If they would have told me I wasn't certified as a mechanic, I'd have never got out. Right. And and in 2001, I could have retired with my full pension. Oh my gosh! And you would have had <laughs> your life would have been completely different. Um, I can only That's imagine. Totally I mean, different. Well, what was what was it like for you reentering the community at that point? Because so much has changed between 1989 and 2012. Is that the year you got out? Well, 2010. I the, the judge the judge threw it out in 2010, but then they appealed for an additional two more years. Okay. It was technology was the hardest. That and getting used to prices of everything, because everything right. dang near doubled in price. And you got to figure when I went in. The World Wide Web didn't exist. Computers were the size of of rooms, right. and only rich people had them, and they were punch cards. Mm-hmm. You so know, you, you so, had to figure all this stuff out, and like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's still the, the computer still boggles my mind. It truly, <laughs> truly does. Yeah, you know, I keep trying, I keep thinking, okay, I got, you know, I, I need to look something up. I need to go to the library, and then I think it's like, no, dumb, dumb, go on the computer. <laughs> Right. I'm like the baby of the family, and so most of my family died off. Oh, and see, that's awful. And did you have? Did you know any people when you uh, came back to your hometown or St. Clarence? Mm-hmm. The, par- the people from the parish of St. Clarence are my family. They they have shown me more unconditional love than I've ever seen in my life. Oh wow! And it's you know if it it's, if it wasn't for them. I'd be I'd be nowhere. I would have nothing. But they they opened their hearts and to me, and it's the most amazing thing. And have have you been able to kind of um, reestablish your life, or has there been a lot of kind of roadblocks for I'm you? I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. I'm working on it. I have no credit because I never established credit because right. I never had time to establish credit. So I can't get any credit. I can't get a job. Luckily, father gave me a job, or I wouldn't have a job. Um, you know, dating, everything, every aspect of my life is affected by this. 
You know, if I just dating alone. Right. When do you tell the girl that you were on death row for 22 years? Do you wait one date? Mm -hmm. And if I wait that one date and then she goes home and Googles me, then why didn't I tell her? Yeah. But then if I tell her on the first day, a lot of them run. Right. Because like, oh, this guy was on death row. Right. Right. Before they even start looking into it and everything else. So, and I'm the last of my name. I'm the last. I'm the youngest male of my name, and I'm 54 now, so my name will actually die out with me. Right, because you can't. So really they have even kids. took that from me. Wow. I was wondering how this whole experience. You're uh, you're one of the nicest guys I know, um, and for especially for all that you've had to go through, you know, you're 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 just like a happy happy-go-lucky guy. I've never seen you in a bad mood or angry, and you know, for all the bad luck that life has given you. How has this experience like changed you as a person? Well, I look at it this way. I'm alive and free. How can I not be happy? I should be dead. Mm-hmm. I should. They should have executed me 15 years ago, and they would have done so and not even batted an eye. Because once they execute you, they get to destroy all the evidence. They get to destroy all their files. And that's where all the evidence was, was in their files. So they would have executed me, destroyed all the files, and said, look, another guilty man is dead. Right. The state did their job and, and executed them to make your street safe. Right. How many have that happened? How many has that happened to? Right. Yeah. You know, there yeah. Is, right now there's 154 exonerated death row inmates across the United States. 154 times. These people were called the butchers, the murderers, the lowest of low, the scum of the earth. And 154 many, times. And a lot of them, their names, you know, for the people that never get exonerated, their names are never going to be cleared of that. You know. Exactly. But there's 154 times that it's proven that they these people did not do it, and they spent anywhere from one year to 39 years. That's it's insane, and in and like in your case, I mean, is it is it worth, uh, I guess, is it is a guilty man's life worth risking an innocent man's life? I kind of guess is what the question right. comes well, down to. It used to be the saying used to be better to release a thousand guilty people than to than to convict one innocent person. Right. It is totally changed now. It's the other way around. Right. Better to you know better to convict a thousand innocent people than let one guilty one free, and that's wrong. That's not the way our system should be. Joe, thank you so much, Mr. Joe D'Ambrosio. That was a I loved this interview. My fa- I think this was hands down my favorite interview. No offense to the other people <laughs> in the past, but this was I really enjoyed um, interviewing him for this and getting to talk to him and catch up and. Uh, recounting his story. So I really appreciate you doing that for us, Joe. That's Joe D'Ambrosio, everybody. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> yeah, Levi. <laughs> I want to talk about some damages that happen from wrongful convictions because I don't think people realize. I mean, Joe hits on a little bit, but so much happens to you because of it that it's like, it's insane. Uh, you can't get a job or a house, really. I mean, you can. It's very difficult. You have to, like, know people and 
Yeah, especially if you're, you know, if you're not from a super wealthy family or an educated background or whatever, and you don't know a lot of people, it's really hard for you to get a job or, or buy a house. And like Joe says, you know, he wasn't able to build any credit. So, you know, because you're just in prison for so long. Like, you can't, you, there's so many things you can't do. You lose your friends, they all move on, have families, move away. Uh, in some people's case, their family and friends die, and they don't even get to be there at the funeral. Um, you can't have kids. Like in Joe's case, you know, you get too old to the point where you can't find somebody. He talks about dating. You can't, like, how do you tell somebody if you're on death row and you get off? Uh, yeah, I was on death row for 20 years. Like, you want to still date? Or, like, if you don't tell them right away. You know what I mean? There's just so many technicalities to this, and it just ruins everything. And then for no reason, you know? For an innocent person. And the state doesn't compensate these things generally. So, yeah, I mean, and you have to learn to adapt to the new social norms of the world and all the new technology that's evolved while you're in prison, um, depending on how long you're away for or whatever. And it's awful. It ruins people's lives and innocent people's lives. We're not just talking about, like, regular convicts. We're talking about wrongful convictions, innocent people that get put away and have to come out with nothing for essentially no no reason. For the mistakes and the lies of the people involved in our justice system. So, uh, Levi, I have a question for you. Levi. Hit me. Why does this happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, for one, there's eyewitness misidentification, what? which is the leading cause of wrongful convictions, because obviously the human mind doesn't really work like a tape recorder, <laughs> because we're still using tape recorders, apparently, in 2016. Uh. But yeah, the human mind is incredibly unreliable, and memories are always jumbled and never really That's perfect good. yeah well you want to hear my theory i've been uh, dying to yeah last episode we talked about shaken baby syndrome and that was like all about this junk science and junk science is a pretty common trend many forensic testing methods have been applied with little or no scientific validation and with inadequate assessments of their significance or reliability as a result forensic and sorry forensic analysts sometimes testify in cases without a proper scientific basis for their findings like shaken baby syndrome with susan goldsmith on episode nine and now available on itunes stitcher and google play music anyways false confessions uh a lot of times police can coerce you into saying things um that's kind of debated but like in making a murderer brendan dassey the nephew of steve dassey who's currently in prison right now a lot of people believe and if you watch the the show and you can see in the interviews uh he was kind of coerced into admitting his guilt um they'll they'll catch you off guard joe talks about this a little bit how they can like exhaust you and then they'll tell you if you just like if you just tell us you did it we'll let you go home and like rest and it'll be okay and you're just like all right i did it and then there's like my leave me alone kind of thing and they'll be like oh yeah you just like admit to murdering a person that kind of thing false confessions are pretty common but the thing that gets me the most and i find is absolutely hilarious is Police sketch artist. <laughs> it's just the most. I'm Funny sorry. Stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're a police sketch artist, but I hate you because. because <laughs> Especially you, Dave. <laughs> we know you're listening, Dave. Police sketch artists are horrible. They're extremely inaccurate, and the odds of drawing, of the drawing being accurate, are so low that they are below statistical significance. It's so, so inaccurate, and yet, like, they've known for decades, probably for the past 100 years, that's, like, pretty unreliable, 
it's almost as unreliable as like using eyewitness testimonies and lineups, but but less. I mean, they they've known this for so long, and we still use it to identify people. Like you can go on TV, and they'll even show like a police sketch next to a like the convict, the actual person that they find, and they don't even look that close. Uh, they did a thorough study of composite sketches uh, by Charlie Froud of the University of Stirling in Scotland. Uh, he had participants study a photograph of an individual for a full minute. Then he had to describe the face for. Then they had to describe the face for a trained police sketch artist, and they wanted to see how well he could uh, do the do the art. And um, they wanted to know how well the people could recognize the faces in these sketches. So the recognition rate was as low as three percent. Three percent. That's insane. Uh, I don't know. I can't wrap my head around why we still use that when it has a 3% success rate. It's true. Why Why are we still using it? I don't know. I, and I always think about how many people were wrongfully convicted like before the 20th century and even the 21st century when we had absolutely no reliable methods of investigation other than asking people about their stories and saying, did you see a person do this? Yeah, I think I saw that guy. He looks like he might be it. And then that person gets killed for yeah, crime. Yeah, we're Stinky Pete and the Suggins gang. <laughs> yeah, like the old westerns. <laughs> like the most unreliable They scenarios. still didn't catch them either, so. <laughs> yeah, so that's just, I don't know. Just something for you to think about, folks, and to understand our criminal justice system. Folks. <laughs> yeah. Bunch so, of you folks. folks. Our justice system is corrupt. A person is innocent until proven guilty. However, that, that's not always the case. We rely on the unreliable. We fall to the convenience of eyewitness testimony, despite its inherent fickle inconsistencies. Conviction isn't a game. It's people's lives. We must be certain of our own convictions, or we'll be destined for a miscarriage of justice. Preserving the life of an innocent man will always take priority over taking the life of a guilty man. Lucidity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lucidity, our website where you can find this episode and all our episodes along with our social media links and extra information is luciditypodcast.com. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode where we won't be so depressing as we have been with the last three talking about, you know, the end of the world, dead babies and wrongful convictions. Uh, How is that depressing? (laughs) Instead, instead we're going to be talking about music. Uh, everybody loves music and it's going to be really fun and good times for all of us so come check out you may know music from such songs as (laughs) and also other songs (laughs) you may know music from songs (laughs) (laughs) oh hit the subscribe button if you like the show and leave a review on iTunes to let us know what you think like actually leave us a please leave us a review we want to get a new noteworthy okay that's what we that's what we want. <laughs> we need you to leave us reviews. Ryan doesn't own any Apple products. That's true. Yep. But you know what does own Apple products? Lucidity is written by Ryan Musk <laughs> and produced by Levi Rainey. 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 Our theme music is provided <laughs> by George Watsky. Additional music in this episode was provided by bensound.com.